okay, why do we need another brewery in Fort Collins? We already have one, which is was Anheuser Busch, and so that was the <laughs> kind of the prevailing thinking that we had to to get over um, to get past was that beer was beer and all beer was the same. Craft beer pioneer Doug O'Dell's own realtor was one of many skeptics when he came to Fort Collins to start his own brewery in 1989. While O'Dell Brewing wasn't the Choice City's first brewery, it created a beer business template that many across the country still follow. O'Dell Brewing is now the country's 22nd largest craft brewery and a favorite watering hole for Fort Collins locals among more than 20 current total Fort Collins breweries. By now you can tell I'm not regular podcast host Aaron Udell. I'm Colorado and food and drink reporter Jake Laxon, filling in for this month's episode, where I sat down with the three founding Odell family members, Doug, his wife Wynn, and his sister Corky, to discuss their nearly 30-year life in beer. I'm Doug Odell from Odell Brewing Company. I'm Wynn Odell from Odell Brewing. And Corky Odell. Let's start at the beginning with some Odell family history. We grew up in Los Angeles and we have an older sister who lives in Portland and has lived there for years. Our father was always in uh, public education, so, um, or higher education, I guess. Uh, he used to work for the California State Colleges and Universities. I think he was like assistant to the chancellor or something. And then, uh, and then he headed up an organization of independent colleges. And universities in California. So well, I remember uh, when I was a kid, he would drink um, sixteen ounce either Bush or Falstaff. Yes, Bush. <laughs> I remember that really well. Being in the refrigerator. <laughs> the cheap stuff. Yeah. <laughs> then he graduated to cheap wine. A job in Washington State first introduced Doug with his future wife, Wynn. I met him at a fly-by-night job in Seattle. I moved to Seattle after I graduated from college. I went to Whitman down in Walla Walla, and I was looking for something and saw this ad in the newspaper for, it just said environmental in the title, and I thought, that's me. So I went, and Doug was there, and it was a very small group of people who were sitting around a table in a basement doing, I don't know, something, computer coding, something really old-fashioned. But what endeared me to him was at lunch, um, everyone pulled out their lunch sack, and Doug puts his stuff on the table, gets on the floor, crawls under the table, and takes a nap. <laughs> like George Costanza or yes. <laughs> No, what we really did was uh, we were computer coding wastewater discharge permits from the EPA, and our this little company had a contract to do that. And so, you know, it, it did say... and the, the name of the company was EnviroKinetics, so it all sounded so gl- glamorous, but in reality, we weren't really having anything to do with it, anything environmental. So, um, but I don't know, I just remember seeing her there and uh, being in- intrigued. It was like five years before we actually considered ourselves dating. We were just buddies for a long time, so. I don't know, we'd go bike riding, or and then we'd go have a beer at the... And the ale house. I remember meeting Wynn for the first time at Doug's house, and I drive up in my Volkswagen Vanagon with two or three this. small children, and she re- told me later she felt like I was from another planet or something, <laughs> like, oh my God, this woman has all these little kids. Wynn would quickly learn that Doug had a deep-rooted passion for beer. 
For some reason, I always had an interest in uh, brewing history in the United States, and um, I uh, collected beer cans at a pretty young age. And when I got out of college, uh, a friend of mine from grammar school, elementary, high school, they lived two doors down, we decided it would be a good idea to brew beer. That was in 1975. And um, so we did a home brew, and it was really, ended up being really bad. It's just a light lager. Uh, and we just had a book that had very little information in it, and homebrew ingredients were few and far between to come by. Um, but I remember it, it looked great. It was nice and yellow and fizzy, and um, but it, it tasted like a cross between uh, cheap champagne and apple cider. So uh, mm. it was really bad. But you still drank it. For some it, reason, <laughs> we, I stuck with it. and uh, I almost, uh, actually, I quit for a year or two uh, in the early 80s, um, or late 70s, early 80s, till I met a guy who owned a homebrew shop in Seattle, and he taught me how to brew with uh, all grain, all you know, whole barley. And by that time, uh, liquid yeast was coming on the market, so it really made all the difference in the world as far as the quality of beer I was making and my interest in doing so. And then combined with uh, kind of the, the startups of, of small breweries in the Northwest, just uh, picked my interest. I remember you home brewing and using our only closet for fermentation. Yeah. <laughs> Doug apprenticed at San Francisco's influential craft brewery, Anchor Brewing, in the late 1970s. Oh, I had, I like to say I had the worst job in the place. I'd, uh, they only brewed once a day, and so after the mash tun was empty, I'd climb in there and, and scrub it down and rinse it down. And then uh, when the brew kettle was empty, I'd climb in there and scrub that down. Because uh, they didn't have any uh, clean-in-place system or CIP, so uh, it was manual labor of cleaning these tanks. <laughs> As the 1980s wore on, Doug got the itch to start his own brewery and started looking around for the perfect city. By the mid-80s, uh, later in the 80s, uh, my friends were telling me that I was making as good a beer as anything you could buy. And, and, uh, and so when and I, after we got married, decided we wanted to be self-employed, and so we just chose to do this. I don't know if Wynn would agree with this, if, if her memory serves as I, mine does, but uh, um, originally, at least, I wanted to do it in, somewhere in western Washington. But uh, even in 1988, when we had pretty much committed to doing this, um, uh, I thought there was, it was already saturated in the Northwest because there was like eight breweries in uh, Oregon <laughs> and Washington, and now there's got to be 600 between the two states. But uh, so we looked around the West for uh, a place that we thought had some similarities to Seattle in the Northwest, uh, um, certainly not weather, but as far as uh, you know, love of outdoors and uh, proud of where you live, and and um, uh, you know, just a, a vibrant community. Uh, this seemed like it, especially with the CSU being here. All the all the things we were looking for: university town on an interstate, but not in a big city, near a big city. Um, I think it helped that I was living here, because well, you had sure. visited me a number of times. And I remember talking to Doug on the phone, and he asked me about Colorado Springs. And I said, no, I don't think you're quite ready for this at this <laughs> point in time. So I really, I feel like I really encouraged them to come. And it was, um, you know, such a growing town, and the education of people, and the love of outdoors, exactly what Doug said. And I felt like people were ready for something different. That's how I tell the story, that you mentioned to him that he should come here, and that that was essentially the extent of our marketing <laughs> analysis our market before we research. came. As Corky says, it's a nice town. 
Once they settled on Fort Collins, the O'Dells began looking for a location. They eventually found a grain elevator just down the street from their current spot that they would have to fix up. We hired uh, Dan Eccles, a commercial real estate guy here. He showed me to a number of different places and we just decided on that one. He, he told me years after we started, he said, I gotta tell you, I thought you were crazy. Um, you hired me to find you a building and I did that. Um, but uh, I remember thinking, why do we need another brewery in Fort Collins? We already have one, which is, was Anheuser-Busch. And so that was the <laughs> kind of the prevailing thinking that we had to, to get over, um, to get past, was that beer was beer and all beer was the same. And so, uh, you know, that was our, our number one uh, kind of competition at that time was uh, lack of knowledge and education was the biggest thing we had to do. I remember that it had multiple levels, which we thought was great because we got to use gravity to some respect, which is great when gravity's coming down, but the going up. We didn't ever anticipate selling beer directly from the brewery, but people started knocking on our door as soon as we opened. So we started using those plastic bladders and we'd fill them up. But if people ordered kegs, Corky or I would go down, we had a ramp that took you down into the cellar and we'd have to push the keg up the ramp, which is, worked okay in general, but if the ramp was wet or something, I mean, we could have killed ourselves <laughs> trying to get those stupid things up there. So, pretty heavy yeah, that, that's largely what I remember about it, it is it was on three different levels um, and quite cozy. It was four different levels, actually. Oh, could, right, to go up to like the bathroom. Yeah. We rented the place on May 1st of 89 and our parents came out that summer to help um, reconfigure it to make it for a brewery and it was filthy. I, I think there had been a woodworking shop in there before, and we had to take down this, uh, the fondest memory I have is taking down this corrugated metal ceiling in the basement, and it was full of just sawdust, and there was a rat carcass in there, and I thought, wow, I'm really <laughs> earning my keep here. <laughs> Great for sanitation. Yeah. Well, in hindsight, I think we were very fortunate not to get uh, infected beer, and I don't think we ever did, uh, but... Um, it, since it was a grain elevator, there was a lot of grain dust, especially kind of in the like in places uh, that we hadn't fixed up. And uh, there was these things called. Uh, um, I finally uh, found some found somebody to look at them and tell me what they were. They were called confused grain weevils or something like that. And um, <laughs> confused because you could follow their tracks in the grain dust, and they just went like all over the place. Oh, yes. Like this, and uh, you know, in hindsight, with how filthy that building was when we got it, and uh, how filthy parts of it still were, I, I think we were very fortunate. We were, but our, our parents were great. They they spent time painting and cleaning incessantly. My mom was sweeping all the time, and they built some walls for us and painted, and it was really fun that yeah. summer to have them here to help out. So it was a, really a family effort. And one thing I remember that was really stupid was uh, cutting the floor drains in the basement. Um, they were using a gas-powered concrete saw, and uh, the two guys plus me all got carbon monoxide uh, poisoning to, to different levels. Uh, um, one of the guys had to go and stay in the hospital for right. a while. Right. I remember talking to them, and they were just totally out of it. Like something's yeah, really I, wrong. I went to the to our doctor and they just uh, gave me oxygen and put laid me down in a dark room for a while and I, I came out of it but uh, they were worse off so it was oh, <laughs> I 
I don't know why they thought it was okay to be using this gas-powered saw cutter down there, but uh, they did. The Way It Was will be back after a quick break. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by the Coloradoans' Facebook Messenger Alerts. Would you like to be the first to know when news breaks in northern Colorado? Or are you more of an entertainment junkie who would love to see the best options of things to do this weekend? Sign up for the Coloradoans' Alerts on Facebook Messenger for a truly customized news experience. Visit facebook.com slash coloradoan and send us a message to get started. Fort Collins was a much different city when Odell first launched in 1989. Well, I mean, it looked virtually the same, but uh, it just wasn't nearly as much going on. And, uh, you know, if you, once you got past Horse Tooth, there wasn't much. And, you know, people who have been here longer than me will say, once you got past Prospect, there wasn't much. And, uh, so, um, I don't know, it just seemed a lot calmer because you know, it was half the size. 30 years ago. It's fairly, I would say it was a very conservative town, so that was one sort of thing that I thought, well, maybe people will be really suspicious, and some people were. They were wondering, you know, sort of the whole bathtub beer thing, and so I think it took a little bit of um, Doug going, and a lot of Doug going, and having people taste the beer to realize, oh, this is legit, and it's delicious, and so it was a kind of hard at first to get people to put our beer on tap, but... Um, Doug is a good salesperson when it comes to beer. For beer, I guess. In addition to craft beer being new to consumers, Odell had challenges in sourcing supplies. Now there's lots of companies who, I mean, who have actually started with the intention of serving the craft brewing industry. Uh, but back then, uh, you know, oftentimes people were uh, kind of taken aback about the the amounts I wanted because they were so far under what other people were ordering. You know, as far as like I remember buying some uh, sodium hydroxide, some caustic to clean tanks, and uh, so I called this place up, and they said, "Well, how many pallets do you need?" And I was saying, "Well, I was thinking more like three bags <laughs> of fifty pounds rather than you know pallets of twenty bags." Doug, Wynn, and Corky initially handled all of the brewing duties. I think we distributed based on just our our basic abilities background. So Doug handled everything production. I handled business. Corky and was, I handled cleaning. And mopping, because that was pretty much my background. Well, and then as soon as we added one person, Corky became human resource, because that's where her skill set is. So, and we've we've stuck in those roles pretty much moving forward. Yeah, but we, I mean, we all used to do everything. So any kind of report to the government, keeping track of our accounts, going to the bank, I mean, everything, accounting and all that, and uh, payroll, safety. Um, licensing, all of those things that we sort of split up when did the majority of it, but um, we did more of the physical kind of work. When I would help Doug, I cleaned out the mash tun and I developed really great laps because you're doing like this with this scrubby pad. And um, then I climbed, I don't think I ever climbed in the brew kettle, maybe once, but it was terrible. It was really hard to get in and out of there because it's this tiny little hole. And then the fermentation tanks at that point had little tiny openings that I had to get into, conditioning tanks, I guess, at that point, and I hated it. So I asked, he gave, he let me on my 40th birthday for never more have to get into any of those <laughs> tanks because it was awful. So <laughs> he did it. It was a birthday gift. Yeah, it was a birthday <laughs> gift. And I'm older than he is, so he had to give that to me. Odell Brewing debuted to the public in late 1989 
just a few weeks after another iconic Fort Collins brewery, Cooper Smith's, had opened its doors. I remember going over there for opening night. The place was just jammed with line out the door, and, and our opening night was a little less memorable than that. Well, we didn't have any. Where wasn't it at Old Chicago? <laughs> old Chicago. Or something? Yeah. Oh, that's right. It was at Old Chicago. Uh -huh. So uh, that's what that was a little discouraging when I thought, oh, geez, did we make the wrong decision about doing a production brewery instead of a brew pub? But uh, no, we didn't. Well, and you know, I remember in those first years, we were in competition with Cooperstown's because they were doing some distribution of kegs around town. Mm -hmm. And so it was a friendly competition, but it didn't take many years for us to realize that the model we had picked ultimately gave us a lot more long-term opportunities. Yeah, we actually helped each other build our places. So. Uh, Remember down there one time uh, hauling concrete pieces out of their basement because they had to lower their floor to put uh, tanks down there. Yeah, so, we were back. They, you guys were back and forth all the time. Yeah, and we used to split grain shipments too in the, right. in the early days. So uh, yeah, it was it was all about cooperation then, and hopefully it still is now. The original Odell beer lineup featured a wheat, a golden ale and 90 Schilling, a beer that would unexpectedly become Odell's flagship brew. I thought I was dark. just going to brew it like once yeah. as a winter warmer for the, in, uh, I brewed it in December of 89 and uh, I remember first, the first time I brewed it, it was about a percent higher in alcohol because it was going to be just a, you know, a winter stronger ale. And uh, when, then when I realized uh, that it was really selling well, that we should, we should continue it, I said, well, we can't make our everyday beer 6.2%. That's too high. <laughs> and now look at some of the things yes. that are out there. It, it was a big beer yeah. at that time, even when it got down to 5.2. And so I remember I drank Easy Street for years. Despite the fact that Doug and I had sampled all sorts of beer when we were in Seattle, I liked the lighter ones. And I think uh, now 90 shillings considered an entry-level beer, which is the yeah. exact opposite of when it started. Still our bestseller, unfortunately, um, just this year, we're starting to see declines over the previous year for that beer, and it's happening to um, all the older brewers' flagship beers. So it's it's bittersweet, but it's still our largest volume. So we're we're very dedicated to it. Early on, Odell would have to shake the image of a similarly named beer. I remember um, when we first started the brewery, people thought we were a non-alcoholic. Like Odell's. Odell's. Yes. I don't hear that anymore, but I sure heard it a lot. The Odell's O'Doul's thing was our first trademark issue back in the early 90s. So we, it's, it's funny that they, I don't think they've been investing significantly in that brand while we have continued to invest in ours. They own the trademark nationally, but we had first use in Colorado, which means great, you can have it nationally, but you can't sell in Colorado. So we came up with an agreement of how we could use the name over time. So, And one of the um, restrictions was we couldn't have cardboard cutouts of Doug advertising it in liquor stores. Because <laughs> at that time, Pete's from Pete, Pete from Pete's Wicked had those around. So AB is looking around, it's like, what don't we want them to do? All right, cardboard cutouts. <laughs> O'Doul's wouldn't be the only name confusion. My, my former husband's last name was Odell, but with an apostrophe and capital D. So when he and I divorced, I changed it back, but now our son works for the brewery, so his business card has his incorrect, well, his spelling, and some people notice it, most people don't. And your daughter-in-law now yes. works for the brewery right. too, so yes. there are two imposter Odells in there. <laughs> so it is, it's very confusing to people. 
the Odell's gamble on craft beer paid off much faster than they had originally anticipated. We had $130,000 in cash when we started, so it wasn't a lot. We actually had three outside investors, um, equity investors in the company, some friends and my sister, and we were in business for two months our first year and we weren't profitable, but then we were profitable the next year, and so at the end of that first full year, we called them and said, you know, we so appreciate you giving us your money, but we'd really like to make you whole and um, make it simpler for you, so we'll double your money back. We'll give you twice as much, and it was the best thing we ever did. Because <laughs> if they were still a part of the company, that would be terrible. They'd own um, way more. Yeah. You know, we had a, a really nice business plan um, that we pulled together, and it's, we didn't have any wages in there for, it, I think it ran for five years or something. We didn't have any wages <laughs> It's like we're just doing this for fun. So we 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 had some um, uh, marks that we were planning on hitting, and we blew them all away. So we were profitable right from the start, which put us in a really good position. But Doug didn't need to get a salary at that point because I was bringing money in a car. He didn't need to get wages. So it wasn't till we brought Charlie in and had to set up that whole system that it occurred to us we could pay Maybe one of the reasons we were profitable since we weren't paying anybody anything. <laughs> <laughs> You know, once we got to about eight accounts around here, that's kind of the number that sticks in my head, uh, that's when um, it, it kind of turned from me trying to convince people to put our beer on tap to, to them being interested, actually interested because they've heard about it, and you know, the bar owners or general managers or something, and uh, we would start, I'd start getting calls, and uh, they'd say, hey, uh, this is so-and-so, it's somewhere, and um, uh, uh, so-and-so down the street is seems like they're doing really well with your beer, so I'd like to put it on tap. You know? So once we kind of hit that, I said, boy, this might work. In 1994, Odell moved to its current location. Well, we were running out of room up there, and uh, so we wanted to find a place. And I don't recall when we decided uh, that we should just build our own. But this property was available, and uh, it was just down the street, so it seemed logical. I remember looking at what is now the armory. It was an old right. dry cleaning yeah, facility, yeah. and it was a it was it was vacant at the time, and I'm so happy we didn't do that because we would have been so constrained in space. We also looked at wasn't it the trolley barn? Yes. on Cherry and yeah. yeah, and we were thinking, oh, these are great, beautiful old buildings, but boy, we did the right thing by building our own. And we felt really strongly about staying in the city limits, mm -hmm. so that limited us, of course, too. And I think it's been a great decision to come this far out of town. At the time, it seemed pretty far out of town. But <laughs> yeah, there was nothing that way. As Odell continued to grow, so did the Fort Collins brewing scene. New Belgium would emerge as a national brand from just down the street. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, there always is a competition, and our local salespeople, you know, they have a friendly competition with their salespeople. But in general, our, our business model split so early on that after a few years, it was, um, it wasn't, so much of a competition is we're just doing different things. Yeah, and it actually it made it easier and more comfortable yeah. to coexist so close right. together. I mean, New Belgium even um, brewed our brewery one time. They brewed, brewed Fat Tire in our brewery. When, Moving from the basement... Oh, right, to the train depot. To the train depot, right. which is Mawson's lumber now. We think the more the merrier. In this case, they have a different business model than we do. So like with us, with New Belgium, we can do our own thing. There's space for all of us. Um, 
with the way the industry is trending right now, I'm concerned for some of the newer breweries, but um, I think they, they've they added to the scene and the excitement around it, and it makes it so, I mean, I can't believe that Fort Collins is a tourist destination for beer, but we certainly benefit from that. One thing we benefit from is uh, uh, the, the city in general is behind us. I mean, the people who live here and also the city government thinks it's a good thing and the Visitors Bureau thinks it's a, the beer is a good thing. And uh, there's other breweries we talk to whose municipalities are not nearly as uh, receptive. In 2007, Odell would reinvent itself with the release of its IPA. I mean, it was the first time we went out and bought a bunch of IPAs. And then we'd get a room full of, of whoever wanted to come together and we'd taste them. And, and, uh, and I remember the exercise was, um, don't just say, I like this or I don't like this. Break this, this beer apart and tell us what parts you do like, what you don't like, what would you see different, what would you do different. Um, the body, the color, the yeah, bitterness, the right, all that. sweetness. The, the, the aromas you're getting, are, you, are they pleasant? Would you prefer to have it more tropical or peach-like or uh, orange or grapefruit? And I remember uh, one comment uh, that somebody made about a West Coast IPA was, uh, he said, it tastes like I just bit on a hop pellet yes. <laughs> because it was so bitter. Yeah. And so, uh, and the, the whole room agreed, well, we don't want our beer to be this bitter. The brewery continues to experiment with ingredients and beer styles. We, we definitely kind of moved towards a kind of a hop forward beer brewery uh, 10 years ago or so. And, um, and so, you know, if you add up all our hop forward beers, they're our best seller by quite a bit, the, the hoppier versions of things and uh, as far as the sours uh, it's it's just a fun thing to do it's it's being able to behave more like uh, a winery where um, the blending is as important as anything in the in the final mix of um, of what you put out to the public and so being able to taste different barrels and and decide which ones we can kind of put together to come up with something unique is, uh, it's a lot of fun and you don't get that making 90 shilling all the time. It's more um, that we decide, you know, what, what, do, what do we think people want from us now? And so then we'll kind of, uh, say, start test brewing that idea. So that's, that's probably more how it works these days. And there's plenty of beers that we make on the pilot system that we make just to make them and to, ser to serve here. There's no intention of, of even seeing if they're potentially a long-term play. Right. Yes. Some of them, uh, uh, excuse me, but some of them um, uh, definitely are not profitable <laughs> yeah. with the effort or the ingredients that go into them. So, uh, you know, that's when I've always said, well, it's, that's why you have things like 90 shillings so you can play around with this other stuff and be able to do it. And when we are talking about a new beer, we have a group of sales and marketing people and production people who come together and these people say this is what we are seeing in the market and these people say this is what we want to make and what we can make and then the brewers as a group go off and create trial recipes for it. It's a very collaborative effort to come up with a new beer and I think that in part leads to our success that you have a whole bunch of good minds working on it to come up with what we think is exactly the right product for something we're actually going to bottle and sell. In 2015, Odell sold the majority of its shares to its employees. We've been talking about transition and for years and years and years. And this was, wasn't a, a quick um, decision. 
But I think one thing that was really important to each of us, and we worked with business advisors who helped us identify what was the most important thing to us, and I think we realized that money was not the most important thing. Selling to a big brewery, we absolutely did not want to do. And so it really helped us narrow down what was super important. And that part of it is um, preserving sort of the values and the culture that we've created and the amazing um, innovation and uh, attention to, to quality. That was really important to us. And I have to say it's probably a little bit of ego too. We think what we create is really cool. <laughs> and so who better to take it on <clears throat> and continue it than our coworkers? The people who helped us build it. Yeah. It helped that, um, so we sold to three, our, our executive team, and then to employee stock ownership plan. And those three on our executive team, two of them have worked with us for 22 and 23 years respectively. So they literally built this with us. Now the Odells are approaching their 30th year in business and currently distribute to 16 different states. Some things seem like, uh, you know, last year and others, uh, um, seemed like uh, a lifetime ago. For us, it's been half of our lives. And so it, um, it, it sometimes seems like it's been our entire life because it's sort of easy to forget that first part that we ever existed before <laughs> it. What I interpret is that we took advantage of all the best opportunities and avoided all the worst opportunities. And in between, there were good things and bad things that happened. But for the most part, we've been, we're very thoughtful about the decisions we make about our growth and who we are as a company and where we want to sell our beer and what beer we want to sell. And I think it's really paid off for us. It has, and I think it's a balance between Doug's desire to keep it very, very small and Wynn and I dragging him, kicking and screaming <laughs> into bottling and things like that and, and distributing in other states. Um, so it, it was a balance between what we all wanted. Yeah. That's all for this month's episode of The Way It Was. Special thanks to Doug, Wynn, and Corky O'Dell for taking the time to chat. Aaron Udell returns next month with a new podcast episode. You can read my beer and food coverage at coloradoan.com. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everybody.